when I came to start thinking about my dream list for this podcast, one of the names that popped up straight away was Megan Crabb, aka Body Posy Panda. Now, if you don't know Megan, she is a body positivity influencer uh, on Instagram and Facebook and a raft of other places. But her feed is just a moment of joy, just absolutely pure in its intention and its mission, which is to breed and generate positivity and to help people out that might need help and in that selfless act I think uh, Megan has found herself in a position where she's gone from you know a very small following to over a million people following her worldwide she has a best-selling book she has sold out tours it's a fascinating time for her and I'm so excited for you guys to get to hear her in conversation this is Megan Crabb on Most Important Podcast nothing lasts forever so the things that you say today might not be the most important thing when i ask you in 20 minutes time or when i see you tomorrow uh, you might have a completely different list but that's okay lovely uh, this is a moment in time yeah. it's a snapshot of what was most important on this date in history of course this is pre-recorded so you don't even know what date it is but in this moment these are the most important things for megan i want to start with most important possession what is it? What's the thing that you think if the house is burning or the car is burning or something, I have to get that one thing out? I would want to grab a piece of jewellery yeah. that my dad gave to me when I turned 21. He gave me a piece of jewellery and a letter explaining the jewellery. And it's uh, a kanji symbol that stands for integrity. And he wrote me this huge letter about how he doesn't care what I do with my life, who I get in a relationship with, where I go, as long as I am living with integrity and full belief in what I'm doing. And that's all he wants from me. And it's that's a very precious thing. That's amazing. Do you do you go back to that letter? Do you remember it or do you go back to it? Both. I dip back to it when I need to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just just feel loved. So it's a very it's a very special thing. I think in in twenty nineteen we probably often decry the loss of the letter. Mm-hmm. And about that notion of like still writing letters. Did you did did you share letters often? Was it the sort of thing that you would write to each other? No, not to my dad. I used to be a huge letter writer though. I this is wild. One of my remaining best friends I met on Habbo Hotel when I was twelve years old, and we went from Habbo Hotel to constant back and forth pen palling actual physical letters. To this day, we are still really really good friends. Habba Hotel? Habba Hotel? Don't tell me you don't. I've no, no idea. What on earth is Habba Hotel? It is obviously now, looking back, a quite creepy social platform where you make a character of yourself and you go and hang out in a hotel. With various, <laughs> think of like The Sims crossed with MSN. Right. This sounds very age six location territory. That's it. Oh. Can we bring that back? Can no. we bring ASL no. back? No, no, no. no, no. There's a reason. <laughs> okay. The L. You can't know. You are right. No, you, are you don't fully, love it. fully right. The, the A and the S, <laughs> maybe. Well, oh, they're not S, G. G. So A, G, mm-hmm. I'm okay with, but mm-hmm. the L, well, no. No, 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 no. It's dangerous territory. <laughs> the the internet, want, man. The yeah, internet. I, we, don't, we, don't want, we don't want any of that territory. We're going to move on to number two. Okay. Uh, most important memory. I like to sometimes do this thing where if I'm just going about my day, try to get a bit mindful. And in my head, it's always, okay, when I am 80-something years old, hopefully I get there, this is a moment I would want to come back to. This is a moment from my past that I would like to revisit because it's just a beautiful 
pure moment. And I very consciously try and store those into my brain memory, feel how good this is, feel how wonderful this is. So simple ones that I have are literally walking my dogs on a nice day when the weather is perfect and there's all kinds of mayhem going on back home or in my phone or in other places. But in that moment, it's just delightful. It's just perfect. So I have lots of memories like that of literally just standing and closing my eyes and just feeling the sun. Those are very good ones for me to go back to when everything feels like it's on fire. Um, your uh, life choices have led you to a job. I mean, it's, <laughs> is it a job? I don't know. I like, don't know. It the sure job feels that like has been, yeah, the job that's been <laughs> placed upon you and probably the way that you make money um, is based around uh, being described as positive or mm -hmm. at least having positivity in its title. Does that feel like a massive pressure? It used to, but I think that was partly on me because okay. I very much used to portray or try and live up to this idea of positive all the time, happy, smiley, rainbow, all of that. And it's interesting the expectations you fall into because actually you haven't declared otherwise mm. and then that's just who people think you are, especially on the internet, as I'm sure you're very aware. It's so, so easy to turn people into one-dimensional versions of themselves. And my one dimension was the positivity thing. And of course it wasn't sustainable. It was absolutely absurd. No one is positive all the time, nor should they be. And actually respecting that I'm just as worthy of, of being kind of seen and heard and existing even when I feel like nothing is right and I am miserable as we all are sometimes and I'm allowed to also put that out there that was a huge shift for me and I still get nervous about it because I don't think I've mastered I don't think I've seen anyone master the kind of balance of seeing things no posting things that people want to see and being completely real mm. I'm not sure we're actually ready for humans to be completely real on social media we still want palatable digestible content that makes us feel nice things mm. and on the other end we have this obviously the effects of that on our kind of global mental health mm. are huge I don't know what that balance is but I don't feel too pressured anymore to be positive all the time I feel pressured to be present um, and to be sassy I suppose I've moved more away from positivity and into pure sass which is more sustainable yeah it probably feels less heavy on your shoulders mm -hmm. I once did a like an, an event with um with Jonah Hill um and he'd just come off uh 21 Jump Street mm -hmm. and he was heading into something that was I think relatively serious um but he came into the room like absolutely unassuming like, he's just sort of shuffled into the room and he was like, hey, I'm Jonah. And just sort of looked wide-eyed at, like, all the people that were in the room. And in that moment, like, it just struck me how hard it must be to be someone whose job it is to be an actor. But you play funny roles, but you play serious roles. But in real life, people have that expectation of you. Mm -hmm. um, we talked. To, you mentioned a little bit there about, you know, what it is to live your life on, on online. In real life, right, you must come into, you, you wrote a very successful book, you go to meet the publishers, is there like, you walk into that room and everyone's expecting like, here comes Ray of Sunshine, Megan. <laughs> she's going to lift all our spirits because she's a body positivity expert. I think so. I think at the very least you write a book and people think, here comes someone who can produce words from their mouth seamlessly. And also some days I can't even do that. I'm, I'm struggling here. No, it's, it's not a terrible day today. But 
some days you just don't want to perform. And I think even if you are your most authentic self online, there's still going to be an aspect of performance because you're almost performing authenticity. You want people to see you so badly that even that becomes a performance. And it's incredibly draining, obviously, but you can't go into these these spaces and be empty, mm. which is what people are a lot of the time. You still have to layer on the performance. And um, I will always be working that out. I, I think that's going to be my entire career in this space mm. is going to be trying to work out that balance and that balance when you're thinking about it is the balance of how do you be you and how do you be the you that people want to buy into mm -hmm. and also how do you protect yourself if you're being too much you because then you're very vulnerable and open to attack if you're literally being yourself i completely understand now famous people who do almost have a facade and it's a very carefully crafted one and it gets the job done because it actually protects them from all of the brutal stuff that gets held their way. I completely get that now. Yeah. I, I've put a caveat in the next question, which uh, a couple of guests have already complained about the caveat. Okay. So I'm going to ask you if you're the most important person, but I have said very clearly, it cannot be a member of your family. I because see. I think it should be, right? Mm -hmm. I think if everything is equal and everything is lovely in your life, then it should be a member of the family. Not true of everyone. It's always nice. But it's a cop-out, right? Like, if you say to me, like, it's Jem or it's Dad or whatever, like, that's a little bit of a cop-out. Most important person, Megan, who is not a part of your family. Oh, I, I, you might need to add a second caveat because I'm a, I'm a flip the script on you and um, say young me. Oh. Is that legit? Can yeah, I? that's, that's great. <laughs> I'm into young you. What's Excellent. that? I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Uh, tell me more about the, the young you category. So I think that whenever there is a time in my life where there is just too, can I swear? Yeah. Too fucking much noise coming from all angles and I'm losing my shit and I don't know what is going on, cheesy as it sounds, is younger me proud of me? It's a very like cliche therapeutic way of thinking, but are you, the things you're doing, is it benefiting them? Can you see the growth? Can you be proud? Can they be proud of you? And I have been going to therapy for, for the last two years and it does often come back to inner child and, and, and younger you. And a lot of these huge, huge decisions that I've been currently making in my life as I set various parts of my life on fire have been to get closer to who younger me thought I would be. And I think when we are younger, we're more free to develop these like wild ideas of, of what we're going to do and the kind of person we'll become. And that all just gets kind of taken away bit by bit and we get a bit disillusioned and we have to take parts out that were dreams or, or passions. And I want to get back to thinking like that. I, the, you know, I don't want the world to make me jaded or, or like I can't dream or I can't become or I can't grow. So younger me is currently at the forefront of lots of lots of decisions I've been making and lots of moments I didn't think I could get through and I have and I'm being kinder to her as well that's a real practice of of actually letting go of all of the blame that you hold for things that you've done in the past or decisions that you've made and looking back with understanding and compassion is there a point in time is it like 1996 Megan or is it just like a span of different points? Like, is there a moment where you're like, <laughs> yeah, like I want to be back in like listening to No Doubt and this is me? Or is How it like a whole... How do you think I am, Snell? Uh, 
That's not wildly out, is it? It's not wildly out, but... You were alive in 1996. I was, but I was three years old. Okay. <laughs> 2006. <laughs> um, Listening to Aguilera, Genie in a Bottle. That would be around that time. There we go. That's there we go. Good cultural reference. Yeah. Um, I think it is... They are the moments in my past where I've made the biggest decisions that have led me to where I am. Those are the, those are the me's that I'm going back to and connecting to. So they are spend a lot of time kind of sitting with me when I first started to have body image issues and, and me when I first started to fall into an eating disorder and more of late me when I first got into a relationship that I've just come out of and these moments and showing kindness to those versions and recognizing that they are all still in there. Mm. I spent a lot of time as well trying to distance myself from those versions of I don't want to be anything like them anymore. I absolutely do. They made me who I am and I want to show them nothing but love and support. I think I'm basically at the opposite point. What's that? That I look back at like a period of time and I think, oh, you were a little shit. You were <laughs> awful. <laughs> like, there's a period of time that I look back on and go, God, whatever you do, don't go back to that. Mm-hmm. Where like I was like, there were a number of things I look back on now and go, oh, you were ambitious in all the wrong ways. You were such a wretched, like, painful person to be around for, like, a number of things. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, mine sort of split into two halves of, like, can you get to the bit before that? I see. Before you got to the bit where you were, like, weirdly ambitious for no particular reason. (laughs) Um, And then get to a bit where you're calm, which is the bit that I kind of feel now, that I feel like I've got to a point where... This is you calm? Yeah, this is me calm. Good Lord. Oh, no, I was much worse. (laughs) I was much worse <laughs> because there was definitely a point where I was like, oh, I was, I was, I was hard work to be around. So I think it's interesting to hear about those sort of different points in time where you think about where you were and how these things would sit with you. What would former you, what would be the bits they would be most proud of? Hmm. The book's got to be in there. Yeah, the book. Little is, Megan must have right. gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book's in there. Um, By the way, that's the most British response I've ever heard. <laughs> the yeah, yeah. Oh, I had a number one best-selling book with Penguin. <laughs> you know, no big deal. We have this conversation every time we see each other. Now. But it's wild, right? <laughs> you grew up reading Penguin books, yes. like that. Like, and and I have this conversation, and, and people probably think I'm mad. Most most media houses, no one cares about. Most media outlets, there are like a handful of media outlets in the world that people care about. Mm-hmm. Disney, right? Mm-hmm. People care. If you said, oh, I've got thing, something going on with Disney, people would be like, oh, okay. Yep. Like um, maybe Universal Music, but probably like Island Records or something like that where you're like, oh, Def Jam, like these sort of iconic brands. Penguin is that. Like if you said, oh, name a book publisher, mm-hmm. it's Penguin. Yeah, but Penguin just happened to be the one who slid into my DMs. But that's, that's that's I didn't know that was how it happened. But that's that's the relevance, right? Like you still did it. Yeah. You still like there's a penguin book. Yeah, you are correct. There is a small penguin symbol on the book that I wrote. Um also on that note that I just said I should stop doing the stop stop giving any kind of like weight to the imposter syndrome thoughts anyway. So yeah. I wrote a goddamn motherfucking book. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. young you would have been impressed young with that. Young me would have been impressed with that. She wouldn't have believed the topic I wrote it about. Hell no. Yeah. But that's part of the magic, I guess. She yeah. would have been impressed. I think she would be impressed. She'd be impressed with my hair, let's be real. She'd be impressed with my wardrobe. Um, I think she would... Uh... Would she? Stylistically, you, you've 
liked the same things. Oh, no. See? But would young you At or would young you stages, be like, oh. Five-year-old me would have been living for it. All, all the rainbow aesthetic. 14-year-old me never thought that she would wear another colour in her life because she was heavy in the uh, emo scene phase. Not that it's always a face, but for me it was definitely a face. Thank you, Mum, for not letting me pierce my lips. And um, then, yeah, me afterwards, maybe not. But there's there's lots of things. I think generally I'm really, this year especially, stepping into just being more unapologetic than ever. And that for me is is the whole aspect of my personal growth. No longer apologising for various parts of who I am, which is a very, very big unlearning job, mm. which will last forever. The... The bit you mentioned in there, I want to come back to, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It popped into your head straight away. You're aware of it. Um, how much does it play a part in your sort of day-to-day? How often in any sort of given week do you think, me? Really? Literally every every minute. It's non, it, It's there. It lives there. It lives there. I think as well because a large part of it is... Um, I'm very conscious as someone who also exists in kind of social justice spheres of always being aware of my privilege and how it's played a part in how I've gotten here. And I think it's very easy for that awareness to turn just straight into imposter syndrome of, um, well, therefore, I don't deserve to be here in any of these scenarios. and I haven't earned these because it's it's all about unearned privilege, whereas, you know, part of it is is. And that's important to recognise. That's So that's an interesting balance. But it's always there. I'm really I'm really working on it. My friend said something to me. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Soho Farmhouse with ASOS. Other brands are available. And um, I was freaking out, as I do when I enter affluent places, let's say, and messaging my friend. And and he said, you know, something that I've realised when I go to events and, and things like that is that I deserve to be there because I got myself through the door. That is all. That is all. I managed to get myself through the door. Therefore, I've earned my place there. Um, and I'm trying to repeat that until I believe it. Yeah. I I mean, I've known you sort of coming on, it's nearly two years now that I've known you. I feel like we've had this conversation a number of times off mic. <laughs> I pride myself on having empathy. Like, I think it's important to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I can't get in your shoes. I don't get it. Like, I think the, I think imposter syndrome is one of the biggest challenges of modern living. I think it cripples in so many ways like I see um I see young people coming through especially because I work a lot in sort of media circles um who are split into two halves of like there's like relatively young people who are like just full of their own shit and you're like dude like you literally don't know anything yet (laughs) like this is wild that you've got the bravado to go for this Mm -hmm. and then I meet other people who are timid and within themselves I'm like you've got no idea how brilliant you are um, it's a difficult question to ask. Have you got any tips for it? Are there anything, apart from the message from your friend, are there anything that you think, this helped me get out of a little bit of the imposter syndrome? I think to an extent, you just have to keep proving yourself wrong. You just have to actually keep actively putting yourself in situations where you think, I can't do this, I shouldn't be here, and then just do it and just be there and prove to yourself that you you have held your own and you can hold your own. And that is literally the only thing. That is the only thing that has helped me with public speaking or like going on a podcast. You know, I, two years ago, if we were doing this, I would literally be sweating. I would just be here in a pool of my own sweat. And I'm quite a sweaty person anyway, but I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm cool. I'm casual. Um, but it's just been 
practice and forcing yourself to be uncomfortable, forcing yourself through the discomfort, I think. So one thing that caught my eye recently is oh, you talk about, oh, you know, this this notion of imposter syndrome. And then I saw on your stories that you're doing a live show. <laughs> I cannot imagine anything more terrifying. If you're saying to me that two years ago you would have been nervous in a room pre-recorded interview, uh -huh. <laughs> you're going to go live on stage. Yeah, we we already done one. Done one. Um, we've already, yes, we have already done one. And uh, it's great fun. It's great fun. It's essentially just me and my best friend in the world saying, okay, we've been given a stage. What shall we do with it? What's fun? Let's do comedy parody songs about diet culture let's do elaborate dance routines in gold hot pants let's throw pink glitter anywhere we possibly can and also slay some diet culture and patriarchy so that's all we do for an hour and a half and um, I think making it fun that's made it less making it fun and having her Jolie yeah. that's actually what has made me able to do it and I'm looking forward to it it, it, I mean, that to me sounds terrifying, but the, the tickets are going well, right? Yeah, they're going all right. Other than the fact that I like have horrible anxiety about promoting anything that I do. As you know, I'm actually terrible at being like, hey, I did this thing. Would you like to attend <laughs> or buy my book? I'm still really bad at that. Has that, has that got better over uh, time? A touch. It's got better a touch in that I'm um, more of the mindset now that empowerment also has to include making money which was an interesting adjustment. And uh, I'm still working on it. No, it still scares me. I hate it. I hate it. I I have a really different view on promotion to everyone else. Mm -hmm. So I, I worked at the BBC for six years. The BBC would always talk about duty of care to the audience and guests. Right. So if you had a guest on the show, like it was your responsibility to make sure that they were okay to come on the show, that they weren't, you know, inebriated or like clinically depressed and this was going to be unfair putting a microphone in front of their face. I think... I always talk about the sort of duty of care you have to your audience, right? There's a set of people that have bought into what you're doing, bought into what you're about, mm -hmm. and you have a duty of care to them in two ways. One, to not do anything like mega weird. So the first time I open your account or see something with you in it where you're eating a Big Mac, I'll be like, ooh, what's happened here? Like when it sees like the big in paid partnership with McDonald's right. and you're holding the bag, I'm uh -huh. like... Oh, really? <laughs> okay, sure. Which is not to say, you know, they couldn't do it, but it would feel weird. Right. But I also will be annoyed with you if it comes to like, oh, we've got this one-off special show that we're doing, but you never heard about it and all the tickets sold out. Like, I think there's a little bit of like, right, people have agreed to come follow and like yeah, be okay. part of the gang. Okay, okay. I see your point. I see the distinction. I see your point. Yeah, you're correct. But I actually feel more weird about that because it's literally like, this is a my brainchild pay me to come see it I don't know I don't know I think as well because so much of what I do and literally the reason I got into it even though I don't know if anyone would actually ever believe this was just to help people um, and the fact that it's now become a career there's so many tensions there there's so much that feels just a bit gross about that my intention starts as I just want to help people and now it's also I want to build a life for myself but that tension's there for everyone, right? Yeah. So I think you're so. a teacher mm -hmm. and you get into it because you want to like inspire young minds and then all of a sudden you're a headmaster or headmistress. Yes. And you're not teaching kids anymore and you're earning three times as much as the the teachers. Like I think there's an element of that and it's sort of people forget it. Like you can be a comedian, like all you wanted to do was hear the sound of people laughing. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, you're Kevin Hart and you're on stage. I mean not next thing. There's a few things in between. <laughs> we should move on to another another most important thing. Lovely. Um your most important decision. 
recovery. It's actually quite easy. That was my that was my most important decision. I think um I don't know where I was going with that. That's it. Like that, that that's it in a nutshell. How did that decision come to play out? Was it a snap decision? Was there a moment where you were like, I have to get better? It's interesting about this idea of, of making a decision because I often describe eating disorders in general. When you're on the way down, it very much doesn't feel like you have a choice to make a decision because I think choice is only valid if the other option seems possible. Mm. And when you're on the way down into probably any mental illness, it feels like the choice has been entirely taken away from you. And I think there comes a point in eating disorders, in anorexia specifically, where you get these little flashes of reality and they are like splinters in time where actually you're like zooming above everything that you're doing and you fully recognize how fucked up it is and you can't believe that you have done this and that that could actually be you making these decisions and and living this life and it's whether within those splinters of time you can hold on to them or not or whether the eating disorder is going to take them away again and convince you that everything's fine and you should just carry on and i had a very sharp splinter in time when i was at my most ill of seeing my dad cry mm. and i had never ever seen him cry before in my life because he is such an unwaveringly strong presence i describe him as an oak tree he's just there he's so solid um, and I'd just, I'd just never seen him cry. And that splinter hit me and that was it. And I realized I, even if I'm not doing this for myself, I'm doing it, mm. I'm doing it. And that is it. And I'm quite an all or nothing person. I think lots of people who've had eating disorders are all or nothing people. So once I was, once I was in, I was in, um, and I wasn't going back and it didn't matter how much my eating disorder was screaming at me, trying to drag me back. I had made my decision and that was it. Um, that's not to say that people who don't, who can't hold on to that decision are any less strong or, you know, relapses are often part of recovery as well. Mm. Uh, but that was it for me. That was, that was my moment. You have on three occasions so far caveated yourself where you've said something and then you've immediately gone to widening it out to the audience to say, I'm aware that there are different ways and that my way isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, Welcome to my brain. Because of the line of work you're in, mm -hmm. do you feel a greater pressure to be constantly balancing everything you say? It's not even just in in my work now or my public speaking. It is just my brain. It is every thought that I have. I think absolutely there is a problem at the moment with cancel culture and with dogpiling and with um, just this this idea on the internet that you're not allowed to be a human being who makes mistakes because we are all going to fuck up at some point. I have done it in the past. I have said things that I wouldn't say now. I have learned. I have grown. I've almost been given the grace of being, uh, on social media and on Instagram in particular, kind of early on. And I had my growth period early on before it was as intense as it is now and before cancel culture was as much of a thing. But of of course I live in fear of it. Like every influencer, activist, person on the internet who I know lives in a little bit of fear of mm. when they're going to be a human being and fuck up. And I think there's a very distinct difference also of someone who is trash and consistently <laughs> doing trash things and we're allowed to cancel them. Uh, but people who are trying to be good humans and say good and helpful things for various social causes... 
I do think they should be allowed to grow and allowed to learn. And I believe more in calling in than calling out. And I believe in if if someone if you can see someone's been dragged, you don't need to pile on further because they've been dragged and they will now they need to now go away and reflect and learn. So what was the question? Yes, that's my brain. (laughs) (laughs) That you do feel the pressure to balance all the time. Absolutely. Next question on my list, which is hopefully slightly lighter, but might not be. Um, most important place? It's probably my sister's house in it. <laughs> um, my sister's a beautiful little purple heaven that I get to escape to. I still do feel like I've got a bit of a double life, what with being influencer, writer, advocate person, generally on the weekdays running around London uh, with my Google Maps out because I still don't know where I'm going any of the time. And then on the weekends, you're getting to run away to my sister's house and be a sister and a caregiver and do simple, wholesome things that actually remind me who the hell I am. So that's that's probably the most important place. There seems to be a lot of laughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the most naturally happy person in the in the entire world. And it's um it's wonderful when you learn her humour. You can have her in stitches. My dad is the best one for it just literally he can say three words and she will be laughing for half an hour and her laugh is very very contagious as the people of the internet have realized i've seen it firsthand it is incredibly contagious i've also seen their double act Mm -hmm. their double act is as a i mean my oldest my oldest is six and that's what i sort of aspire to to have that sort of code where the two of you can break each other into fits of laughter yeah. with a look. And that's the bit where I always like, that's that that's a bond you can't fake, right? You can know a lot about someone. Mm-hmm. But like the times I feel competent as a parent is when I can exchange a look with my oldest mm-hmm. and she knows where I'm going with it. <laughs> or I look over and she's rolled her eyes because she knows where I'm going with it. And I think at six, the fact that she has the measure of me is the bit that I feel <laughs> I feel most like, oh, actually, maybe I have done some good in this whole thing. <laughs> We've sort of touched on this already. So you, you might go back to an earlier answer uh, or not. Most important piece of advice you've ever received. Ooh. People won't like you and you will live. You will, you will not die from people not liking you and it's actually okay if your entire existence isn't about making people love you. <laughs> Wild concept. <laughs> uh, again, two years ago, would not have believed that in the slightest. And also to a certain extent, like existing on social media, you have to kind of bank on people liking you a little bit, but I'm very much someone who can dangerously slip into being that, that being my entire sense of validation and of self. Do the masses like me? If the masses like me, then this other group of people probably don't like me. How do I balance that out? How do I show them who I am? And I think it's been a real realisation of some people just don't want to see you. Some people just don't want to see who you are. They are not interested. They have no time or energy. They've already decided they don't like you. So stop trying. Mm. Just stop trying. Save yourself the energy and the heartache. And I'm getting a bit more comfortable in that of, you know, if I go to something and I know there's people there who don't like me don't know me but have decided they don't like me realizing that that's their problem and not mine Mm. and I don't have to spend the rest of my day or that rest of that whole week trying to figure out how to make them like me because it's it's a waste of time it's incredibly draining Mm -hmm. because it's oftentimes with those people it's impossible to move the needle right yes you're not going to make someone I think making someone like you is basically a it's like a secondary school high school myth This one is hard, and I'm unapologetic about that. Uh, We learn a lot from the good days, 
Mm-hmm. We learn more, in my opinion, from the bad days. Mm-hmm. Megan, what's your most important mistake? Dropping out of university the first time. <laughs> Done it twice. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, there's, <laughs> there's layers upon layers here. First of all, we have to get into the like, so you, what were you studying? Philosophy. Okay, where? UCL. Okay. And oh, you smart. <laughs> Straight A student. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I feel like I've passed the age that I can brag about my A level results. But yeah. Um, so I, uh, I was there. I chose. To be fair, I chose the wrong place. I chose it because it was impressive, not because I liked it or I liked London or I liked the course. I just wanted to show off, and that's not really a good reason to make drastic life decisions. Not for three years. No, absolutely not. And uh, also, I don't like London, and it destroys my soul a touch. So moving to London, to a place that I didn't actually really like, and of course I wasn't particularly interested in um, at, at 18 when, oh my God, everything's hard anyway, and like mental health is hard, and, and I hadn't been in, even in recovery that long, and, and it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot, and I was not ready for it at that stage in my life, I don't think. However, it was such... Uh, an important part of who I believed I was going to be. You know, we talked earlier about about younger, younger us, younger me. And younger me, obviously, was going to go to a great prestigious university and work her butt off and do really, really well. And breaking that narrative that I had set for myself, that course in life I had set for myself, felt like a huge, huge mistake. Some days now it doesn't feel like a mistake. This is an interesting question because, yeah, there's so there's so many layers to this. I know I couldn't have become who I am now and done the things I've done now if I had stayed. I don't know if I would have been a philosopher. Maybe I am a philosopher <laughs> now, a philosopher of current affairs or social justice. Um, I, yeah, yeah, that feels like a giant fork in the road where part of me still wishes to go back to and do the other thing. We've talked a lot about the past. I want to talk a little bit about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, most important dream. Mm. Oh, I don't like saying dreams out loud, but again, this is something to work on, isn't it? You're allowed to have dreams. Okay. Most important dream. I would like to be remembered as someone who properly fucked up diet culture. However that looks, I I used to have these ideas that I would... um essentially make a fat positive Weight Watchers and this entire uh, industry of its own where you just go to a session once a week and actually you sit around and talk about empowering things and loving your body and feeling great and and then you go home and you don't change yourself. And that was, uh, I don't know if that's ever going to be possible because I'm not sure there's money in that and you obviously you need money to sustain things. But I would just, yeah, I just I just want to be remembered as someone who has been part of the shift. I don't have to do the entire shift. I obviously won't. There's been people who come before me. There'll be people who come after me. But that is that is what I would like, yeah. I think you're on your way. <laughs> yeah. Is my view. Thank you so much for being part of this. I appreciate you uh, indulging me. Before we go, I'm going to ask, and I'll, I'll take you back to the beginning where I said uh, anything you say is important today may not be important tomorrow. Okay. And I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most important song for you? Rusted Root, Send Me On My Way. Ooh, hello. You came to that answer very quickly. <laughs> Most people like flounder around, like trying to remember something. It's my absolute favourite song. You hear those opening... Do you know the song I mean? I have no idea what the song is. It's in Matilda. Um, it's the one where you can't understand their word, like the words that the guy's saying. 
Hang on, it's in the it's in the film Matilda it's in the or the film play? Film Matilda. Right. It's I think it's from like the nineties. You can't listen to it. It's the happiest song of all time. It's the happiest song of all time. You can't hear it and not want to skip around the room, and that's why it is important. Okay, give me the name once more. Rusted Root, send me on my way. Coming up next week, the twelve million yeah, that's right, I said it, twelve million strong followed Woody and Kleine. I tell you what would be helpful, if you don't mind, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and do a little rate and review for me. Let me know what you thought of this week's episode. If you want to hear more about the show, make sure that you're following me on Twitter and Instagram where I'll be giving you all the background and letting you know which guests are coming up in future weeks. So follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ilsung. You've been listening to the most important podcast with me, Sunil Singhvi. 